Nice and loud. Lamet. Intro to the shepherd's staff to teach and find. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. If your law had been had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. <coughs> the wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes to all perfection. I see a I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. All right, great stuff, Lamed. Okay, so then we have a couple things here. First thing, I got a letter today in the mail, and I don't have permission to read it, so I won't give the name, but it doesn't matter that I read it without the name. So here we go. Charlie, how blessed you are to have such gifted people to assist you. Thank you for Burke, Jim, Sergio, and Rhoda. I also sometimes see Bob, because Bob used to open us, in the communion line, and how blessed I am by the Superior Word Ministry. Well, isn't that wonderful? So I can't give her name without permission, but uh, you, your help last week was hugely appreciated. And uh, not just by me, but obviously by people online. And so, Well, great. thank you, nameless person. Yes, thank you, nameless person. That was really, really special that we got that. So uh, then uh, we will read a This Day in Christian History because we have time today. May 9th, he was victorious in death. By the 1600s, Scotland had fallen under English rule. For Scottish Presbyterians, their loss of religious freedom was even more galling than their loss of political freedom. The King of England was the head of the Church of England, yet to Scottish Presbyterians like John Patton, the true head of the church was King Jesus. There was, this was no mere theological distinction. The Anglican Church in that day asserted its authority over individual conscience. In response, John Patton and many other Presbyterians in Scotland covenanted together to uphold and defend the principles of the Reformation and became known as the Scottish Covenanters. Captain John Patton was born in the 1620s on a farm in rural Fenwick Parish in Eyre, Scotland. He became a professional soldier and fought under Gustavus Adolphus in Germany and with the Covenanters at the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644. Rulion Green in 1667 and Bothwell Bridge in 1679. Since he was a Covenanter, Patton spent most of his time retired it most of his retirement in hiding. Finally, in August 1683, he was arrested. He was tried and sentenced to death by hanging for treason against the crown. But Patton and it's P-A-T-O-N, so it may, might be Patton or something. I don't know. Anyway, but but. I'll call him Patton. Patton remained fiercely loyal to a higher king. On May 9th of 19, or sorry, 1684, from the scaffold, he read his last testimony. Dear friends and spectators, you are come here to look upon me, a dying man. I am a poor sinner and could never merit anything but wrath and have no righteousness of my own. All is Christ's and his alone, and I have laid claim to his righteousness and his sufferings by faith in Jesus Christ. Through imputation, they are mine, for I have accepted his offer on his own terms and sworn away myself to him. 
to be at his disposal, both privately and publicly. And now I have put it upon him to ratify in heaven all that I have purposed to do on earth and to do away with all my imperfections and failings and to stay my heart on him. I now leave my testimony as a dying man against the horrid usurpation of our Lord's prerogative and crown right, for he is given by the Father to be the head of his church. Oh, be oft at the throne and give God no rest. Make sure your soul's interest. Seek his pardon freely, and then he will come with peace. Seek all the graces of his spirit, the grace of love, the grace of holy fear and humility. Now I desire to salute you, dear friends, in the Lord Jesus Christ, both prisoned, banished, widow, and fatherless, or wandering and cast out for Christ's sake in the Gospels. Even the blessings of Christ's sufferings be with you all. Strengthen, establish, support, and settle you. Now, as to my persecutors, I forgive them all, but I wish they would seek forgiveness of him who hath it to give. Now I leave my poor sympathizing wife and six small children upon the Almighty Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who hath promised to be a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. The widow and orphans stay. Be thou all in all to them, O Lord. And now farewell, wife and children. Farewell, all friends and relations. Farewell, all worldly enjoyments. Farewell, sweet scriptures. Preaching, praying, reading, singing, and all duties. And welcome, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I desire to commit my soul to thee in well-doing. Lord, receive my spirit. Reflection, if you were about to be executed for your faith, what do you think would be your last words? God promises to give his children the words to say when the time comes. Matthew 10, 18 through 20, you must stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. This will be your opportunity to tell them about me, yes, to witness to the world. When you are arrested, don't worry about what you to say in your defense, because you will be given the right words at the right time. For it won't be you doing the talking, it will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. So there you go. He, um, I like how he said, farewell to sweet scriptures. He remembered God's word in his... Uh, so the king of England always proclaimed that they were the king of the church, head of the church. Right, so which all of them do. King James? Yeah, probably. That was 1600, 1620, and that was 1611. So yeah, King James, certainly. But they all did. The German guy probably said he was because they had their own little thing and they wanted to be, you know, the grand poopah or whatever. So there you go. Um, I got this in the mail today, and it doesn't say who sent it. It just has the place that it was sent from. Judaism's strange God. God's, so if somebody is watching and they sent that to me, I want to thank them. And if somebody here wants to read this before I get a chance to, because it's going to be a while before I get to a book, um, you're more than welcome to come and uh, read that and then get it back to me. But um, whoever sent that, thank you. And uh, what it is, there's no doubt about it. The, the Jews left the God of the Bible. The Talmud is based on all kinds of things that are unscriptural. And that's why I don't cite, as so many people do, the Jewish sages and the Jewish rabbis, because unless they are quoting scripture and giving an analysis of scripture, they're not really following, you know, anything. As a matter of fact, if uh, you read something like in Breaking Israel News or something, the Sanhedrin says Messiah is coming because of this sign or that sign. Listen, Messiah has come. He's come and they missed it. That's why they were in punishment for the past 2,000 years. I am not anti-Jewish, but I am definitely not pro 
their beliefs, okay? And whatever this is, is probably a pretty good book. So there you go with that. Um, and we'll go ahead and get into one career. Oh, no, we got to pray to get started, don't we? Here we go. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to be in your presence, to share in you, to share in your word, and to seek out uh, what you would have for us, both in the Old Testament and in the New. What a joy. What a pleasure it is to be in your word. And we thank you for the men of God who brought it to us and those who have preserved it all of these thousands of years so that we would have a word from you that is as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. And even more so because we see the pictures from the Old Testament coming true before our very eyes. Lord, we thank you for these things. And Lord, help us to do well in the class today, to hold close to your word and not to deviate from it. But I would certainly pray that each person that listens would be willing to check out what they hear and to confirm that uh, I'm on the right path. And if I'm not, to uh, not uh, assimilate into their gray matter something that is incorrect. Lord, we would trust that that's not the case, but we also pray that you would be exalted and that you would lead people to a right understanding of your word from whoever it is that gives it. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. We have um, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 is where we are this week. And I've got to get this on. I'll back it up to 7, which is Please the do. a paragraph. Yep. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. Since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Eight. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. That's right. Okay, there you go. 8-8. Eight, eight. Taken in context with what Paul has been saying concerning things offered to idols. Remember, we're talking about food. You go to the Thai temple in Tampa. Can you eat the food? Are you doing wrong? Etc. That's what we're going through. And we will go through this again in another passage in uh, Paul's writings. But right now, we're... Uh, taken in context with what Paul has been saying concerning things offered to idols. This verse should be perfectly clear on several levels. And yet, it is astonishing that so many Christian sects and even aberrant cults fail to grasp the simple and clear language of his words. Here, he starts with the word, but. It is then a contrast to what he had just said. For some with consciousness of the idol until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled the weaker in doctrine and understanding the less informed in what christ did and those who are not yet properly instructed in the word may have reluctance to eat some type of food because it is perceived to be defiled and thus unclean but that is not the case now i'd like to stop right there before i go on i'd like to say there's a difference between having a defiled conscience about something at an idol's temple and having a conscience that says, you must observe the law of Moses. The two are on completely different levels. Anybody give me an answer as to why? In what respect? I, I, I mean, just... Well, I, I will say this. If you are saying that you are under the law of Moses and you can't eat these particular foods that are in Leviticus 11, what are you doing? No, you're reinserting the law. The law. You're saying that Christ was insufficient and he didn't fulfill the law. We're going to talk about that in detail during the Prophecy Update on Sunday. But you're saying that he didn't fulfill the law or that you're, you can do it better than he can. So there di there's a difference between understanding what is going on in an idol's temple. You know, you go to the 
idol of Dionysius, and they have some great pork chops there, and they say, can I eat them or can I not? They were sacrificed to this idol. That's what he's talking about here. Right. He's not, in this context, talking about the reinsertion of the law of right. Moses. He talks about that a lot in Galatians. But if somebody is there reinserting the law of Moses, that is a heresy because you are diminishing the work of Christ. You are saying that you have to do something in order to be saved when he's already done everything. He's fulfilled it all. It is done, obsolete, annulled in Christ, etc., as it says in Hebrews 7, 8, 10, and Colossians 2, 14. So, um, that's what I'm talking about there. But there is no unclean food for the Christian. Say that again. There is no unclean food for the Christian, as Paul will later state in 1 Corinthians 10. Let me take you there, and I'm going to read this to you. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 25. It says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Does he say eat whatever is sold in the meat market except pork? Does he say eat whatever you sold in the meat market except shellfish? Fish without scales? Because all of those are outlawed under the law of Moses. He's saying eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. If you don't want to eat certain foods because they have pesticides, if you don't want to eat certain foods because they make your face break out, if you don't want go on down the list. Whatever the reason is, that is fine. You're doing it for your own personal reasons. But if you are doing it because you think that God is going to be mad at you, you are on the wrong path. And that's where, why we are getting this doctrine here today is because Paul says you are not on the wrong path. Eat whatever you want, whatever. Okay, there are certain foods that I don't eat because I don't like them. That's very few of them. And I will even eat those, I just won't like eating them. Uh, you know, we in the past month, I have eaten watermelon, I have oh eaten, gosh. yes, no. I have eaten tomato, and I have eaten fish. And yet I don't like, those are the three foods I don't like. But that's, I don't eat them because I don't like them. But, you know, somebody gives it to you and you say, okay, I'm gonna be polite and I'm gonna take a bite of this. But it's not my thing. Did you get any pictures? Okay. She didn't get any pictures of them. But, yeah, you were sitting right next to me with one of them down at the uh, uh, restaurant, um, right down the road, uh, the, the right across from Turtle Beach, the pub. We had the fish there, remember? Anyway, here we go. As Paul will later say, okay, it is the Lord's earth, and he has granted the things of the earth to man to eat. Only a particular group of people, and for a particular set time and purpose, were given dietary restrictions. A particular group of people called Jews, Israel, okay, and what is the particular time? The time of the, that's right, the time of the law. The law was introduced, nobody else on earth was given that law, only Israel, and only to make a picture of the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, and I'll probably say this again on Sunday, because as I said, I'm gonna talk a lot about uh, this particular type of thing on the Prophecy Update, but, um, uh, what was I just going to say? Now I've lost my train of thought. Okay, let's go on. Um, uh, oh, no, I know what I remember. This morning and yesterday morning, Sergio emailed me. He's reading the book of Leviticus. And while he's reading the book of Leviticus, he is going through line by line my commentary on the sermons. And he was completely blown away by the dietary laws, Leviticus 11. He says, I can't believe it. This is astonishing. And then he said the same thing about something in Leviticus 12 today. I can't remember what, but... He's 
just if you've never gone through the book of Leviticus, I'm not talking about the people in the church here because you all have. I'm talking about people that are, attend online. It seems like the most drab, boring book. Whatever you think about it, you are wrong. It is astonishing. Every single picture, every single passage, every single uh, paragraph, and every single verse points to Christ. It is an astonishing book. Anyway, um, we'll go on. What? I heard from the pulpit when the guy was saying, if you're going to read, don't read in Leviticus that stuffy book. And I thought, I thought myself, I want change that it's an exciting book if you listen to charlie <laughs> it, it is so exciting i mean I, I literally was almost mourning the day that we finished the book of leviticus i was almost in mourning thinking i just i i, I wish it could have gone on and on it what an astonishing what's that start all over start all over again <laughs> hey remember when we did acts and we didn't film any of acts and so somebody said well let's just do it again and we had just finished it i mean the bible is exciting it's exciting so you know maybe we should go back and film x because that really was a, a critical book and people need to understand what's going on there because without the book of x you are going to have bad doctrine if you start applying it prescriptively which everybody does doctrine will fail it is not a prescriptive book but let's go on um i'll read that again it is the lord's earth and he has granted the things of the earth to man to eat only a particular group of people and for a particular set time and purpose were given dietary restrictions you all got a hundred on that one you identified who it was and what it was that time and purpose was fulfilled in Christ Jesus and is now set aside and obsolete there are no zero dietary restrictions imposed by the Bible for those in Christ Paul explains why when he says food does not commend us to God. That's right out of this verse that we're looking at right now. Hello, Elaine. It is not worrying about what we eat that is pleasing to God. It is a pure conscience, a right walk, and a heartfelt adherence to his word. Christ fulfilled the law of Moses, and we are to trust in his work, not our own. Somebody emailed me over the past week about tithing, and he said, uh, how freeing it was to know that we do not have to tithe because he says giving is my gift I, I'm not gonna give his name or anything and I'm gonna misquote it so it doesn't you know I'm not giving anything away but he said my gift is giving and I always felt like when I had to tithe I was being violated of the very gift that I have because I love to give but all of a sudden I have this this thing imposed on me and he said I am so glad to see this we adhere to the Word of God wherever it takes us that is what we are to do we're not to insert our presuppositions. We're not to add the law back in when it comes to money or any of those things. We adhere to the word of God in context and tithing is not the context of this dispensation, okay? Concerning foods, the truth is that for neither we eat and if we eat, we are the better, nor if we do not eat, we are the worse. That's Paul's words from this verse again. Whatever we cannot harm, whatever we cannot Whatever we eat cannot harm our relationship, nor can it make it a closer walk with Christ. It is a neutral matter. Whatever we eat doesn't get us closer to God. Whatever we don't eat gets us no closer to God. It is neutral. It's just like this. What is this? Computer. It's a computer. It's an iPad. It's technology. It is not evil. It is not good. It is neuter. It is what we do with this thing here that is either acceptable to God or not acceptable to God. Food is exactly the same. 
we have things around us that are evil. We have things that are around us that are good. But these type of things right here, this is neither good nor evil until I turn it on and I start using it for one purpose or another. And that's the way food is. The same with the most abused verse in the Bible, money. Money, absolutely. It's not evil. It's not good. It is what it is. It's just simply a, a means of exchange and buying things. Even the Bible talks about money 10 billion times, okay? the love. Yeah, it's the love, the love of that money. But money itself is neither good nor bad, okay? It's just simply a thing that we use in this current world that we live in, okay? So um, whatever we eat cannot harm our relationship with God, nor can make it a closer walk with him. It is a neutral matter. If a thing sold in the meat market, which had been sacrificed to an idol is not unclean, then this shows us that no foods are unclean. Pork is the typical example used by nutty cults and sex as being a no-no. And yet, it is certain that whatever is sold in the meat market includes it and any other type of meat. The pagans didn't care what meat was hanging in the market. They had no idea what the law of Moses included. It's absurd to think that the act of sacrificing an animal to an idol didn't include pigs, dogs, horses, or any other unclean animal. Those sacrificing didn't pull out a copy of the Torah and search to see if the animal that they were about to sacrifice to an idol was clean under the law of Moses before defiling it by sacrificing it to an idol. They didn't do that. Life applications. Think clearly on biblical issues. Don't be led astray by people with crazy agendas or ideas. If one doesn't eat pork because they are trying to please God, then anything else under the law of Moses must also be adhered to. It is an illogical thing to pick and choose scripture in order to make a point which actually does not exist. Instead, it only causes one to revert back to the need to fulfill the law in its entirety, which is an impossibility. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of our great God. Give no offense, as the Bible instructs you, to the Jews or to the Greeks in this life that you trod, nor to the church of God and those in it. Instead, attempt to please all men in all things. Therefore, don't seek your own profit, but the profit of many in all your doings. This so that they may be saved by seeing your actions and how you behaved. 8-9. Be careful, however that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay, that's close. All right, Paul has been speaking of knowledge concerning the issue of things offered to idols. He's clearly shown that eating something offered to an idol makes no difference at all, and that the food is not defiled because the idol is nothing in all the world. This is an inescapable truth when clearly reasoned out. However, his words here begin with, but. There is a contrasting thought which must be presented. When he began this chapter, he used a parenthetical statement which introduced two thoughts. The first was knowledge, and the second was, does anybody remember? Pride. No, knowledge and begins with L, ends with O-V-E. <laughs> good, love, very good. Okay, he will now begin to address that second issue. Yes, we may have knowledge concerning our liberty in the matter, but is that the end of the issue? And that's right. The answer is no. His understanding of the weakness of some leads him to state his contrasting thought. But beware, 
tells us that this is a serious matter. The word translated as beware indicates to look into a matter or to discern. If we have knowledge, we should mix that knowledge with discernment. And the reason is lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Remember, we're talking now about love. We know knowledge. It's okay to eat these things. What about the person whose conscience is defiled? His use of the word weak is tied to knowledge. In other words, where your knowledge is strong and sound, others may be wavering. They might be unsure or they might be misinformed. If your knowledge isn't mixed with discernment, what will then be the result in them? It will become a stumbling block. Okay, once again, what is a stumbling block? Is it a big thing that's standing in front of you? No, if you see something in front of you, you walk around it and you go around. Stumbling block is something really small that people don't see and they trip over. And that's what we're trying to avoid with our fellow brothers who have a weaker conscience. And why do they have a weaker conscience? Because they don't have the knowledge. Exactly right. Without the knowledge, their conscience is defiled. They're weak. And that's why we come to Bible study, is to gain knowledge. And it, it's almost criminal to think that people get saved and they say, I love Jesus with all my heart and soul. And they don't study the Bible. The two are almost mutually exclusive. How can you say I love Jesus and not want to know every single thing about him? Everything. I don't understand it. I don't get it how people can go to church on Sunday and a church that doesn't open the Bible because they just want to feel close to God. And then the rest of the week, they're not doing anything. Sure, they may be praising him. That's fine. They may be loving him in their heart. And that's wonderful. But how can you do that properly if you don't know who he is? and what he expects of you, and what he has done to reveal himself to you. I just don't get it. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I don't get it. I want to know more about this every single day. What were we talking about before class something? And I said, oh, surfing. You know, I used to surf. Freda's sister had a surfboard with a Christian symbol on there. And I, whenever I hear the waves, because I can hear them from my house, I think, boy, it would be so nice to go out. I got the board hanging right in the garage. I gave it to Sergio, but he left, and so it's back in my house again. And I could go out anytime I want, but I say, you know what? It's more important I stay inside and I keep working because I'm learning the Bible. I'm helping people with the Bible. And so I haven't been surfing in years and years and years. But someday, as I said to Burke, I'll be surfing for eternity. So, yeah, that's I'll be surfing uh, galactic waves and stuff. So who cares about this? Anyway, um, stumbling block. Um, uh, if you're, let me read it again. If your knowledge isn't mixed with discernment, what will be the result? It will become a stumbling block. A stumbling block is something that trips one up. It is usually an unseen obstacle, such as an imperceptible raise in the level of one block on a path. It is just enough to cause harm but not enough to be noticed. At other times, a stumbling block may be perceptible, but the person may have their attention diverted to other things. Either way, the result is a fall. Paul's coming ex explanation of this will move from the subject of knowledge in a person to that of love for another person. This then is a verse which transitions to that thought. Life application, we are given rights, meaning liberties in Christ, that are very clear and precise. How off, however, they often require knowledge through study in order to be properly grasped. As study is something most people don't really cherish, have time for, or for whatever other reason, it is up to those who have studied to not use their knowledge to harm those without the knowledge. 
but rather to instruct them in right doctrine of what they already understand. As Paul noted, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Let us impart knowledge and do so in a loving manner. Okay, 810. For anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Okay, so he's making a logical question here. Continuing with the discourse on knowledge, in relation to love, Paul now brings in an example from real life to help the Corinthians, and thus us, to understand more clearly what he has been speaking of. I've mentioned that we have a temple. We got one, a new one down south of here, somewhere in Venice. But we have a big one up in Tampa. It's a Buddhist temple. That's an idol's temple, right? There's all kinds of idol's temples all over the world, but we'll just use that as an example. What if I go up there and I'm eating it, and one of my friends came with me, and he's totally untrained in theology, and he sees me eating there. What's he going to think? That's, what he's, that's the exact point he's making right here. He begins with four, thus showing that he is referring to a previous thought. This thought is that knowledge of someone who uses their liberty in Christ may become a stumbling block to those who are weak. This verse now explains that. He says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, all of you are getting knowledge tonight. You're going to go out and you're going to use that knowledge according to however you desire. But somebody else may not have the knowledge that you have in your head. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, well, what's going on? Okay. This is speaking of the person who understands that an idol is nothing in the world. Their conscience is free from the superstition that an idol has any effect on anything. I'll stop there and I'll say that right now I'm going through the second time in the audio Bible. And... I uh, have been listening to Jeremiah for the past, I don't know what I'm in right now, but anyway, Jeremiah really calls out the people for wrongdoing, for idols, for proclaiming false messages from the Lord, and on and on, okay? And while I'm going through there, especially uh, thinking because we're talking about idols here and what he said about them in there, I'm saying to myself, how stupid we are, how stupid we are. But we don't think, you know, before I met the Lord, I had all kinds of stuff where I'm asking, I had Buddhas and stuff, because, hey, looks good in the garden over there or whatever. I mean, you just don't think. And once you understand who Christ is and what he's done, all of a sudden, it's like, what was I thinking? You know, what, what was I thinking? And you, you listen to these people that are in Israel that have the word of God, and they're bowing down to wooden things that they've carved. And what are you thinking? It's just very hard to, to grasp. But anyway, if you want to kind of get scared about things in the world around you, listen to Jeremiah, because there are consequences for the actions that we take. If such a person with that knowledge is seen eating in an idol's temple, Paul is saying, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? That's Paul's words. In this, the person of the conscience of him who is weak is the person who believes that an idol is actually something. It could be a weak per believer or a person who is still trying to figure out if Christianity is true and worth following. What will be the result of such an action in their mind? The answer is that they will be emboldened. The word for emboldened, it's a big long Greek word, uh, and it, has, it is used only here in the New Testament. It carries the thought of building up a house. In this, then, is an ironic expression because Paul is intimating that what he is building is actually destructive. 
instead of being edified, he's harmed in a right understanding of the truth. Why? Because he may now believe that, one, it is okay to mingle the pure faith with other ideologies. That's known as syncretism, taking a little bit of this religion and mixing it in with that and saying, I now have faith that I can do these things, okay? Or two, he may now believe that an idol is actually something with a force or power rather than nothing in the world. Calvin translates this thought a ruinous upbuilding. Think of it. You're ruining something while you're upbuilding it, okay? I know every time I mention John, John Calvin, somebody freaks out and sends me an email. Listen, people that have bad doctrine can say wise things, okay? That's the way it is. If somebody, if Paul cites who in the book of Acts and then again in Titus? Greek philosophers, right? Were they Christians? Were they saved? No, but they say so. He doesn't get his doctrine from them either. Absolutely right. So there you go. So when I cite John Calvin, don't go ballistic on me. What he said is absolutely right. It is a ruinous upbuilding. You're building something which is actually ruinous. In order to make this understandable to the readers in Corinth, Paul uses another word which is unique in the New Testament. It is the word translated as idol's temple here in the New King James Version, which is idoleo. This was not a word used by the Gentiles. Instead, it was something that those who understood that there was only one God, they used that word. A Gentile would name a temple based on the idol in the temple, such as Athenium, okay, the temple of Athens, or Apollonium, the temple of Apollo. To them, the temple was a reflection of the God within it. To the Gentiles, it was a reflection of any given idol within it. Hence, the term idolia was used to indicate the temple of an idol. Life application. The perception by others of our freedom in Christ is important. Until they have right knowledge of the matter, is it right, or I'm sorry, it is right that we not use our freedom in a manner which could destroy the very building which they are erecting in their knowledge of Christ. Okay? Having said that, if somebody sees you eating something that they think is wrong, you don't have to stop eating it. What you do is correct them. You say the Bible, and if they want to argue the point while you're eating, say, can we finish, can I finish my meal before we get into this? But I will instruct you properly. If you disagree, you've got the knowledge I have now. Either one of us is wrong, but you have to make the choice because this is what the Bible says. Take them to the Bible, show them the word, but you don't have to stop eating your dinner just because somebody is offended that you're eating pork. It's their problem, not, not yours. An idol is nothing in all the world, this I know, but others may not understand this yet. If to the temple of an idol I were to go for a tasty snack or for lunch, I may later regret. What if they misunderstood my going there and thought that I worship the idol just like the Lord? They may think that they also can worship anyone, anywhere, and that the Bible isn't God's only word. My knowledge may harm them in this way, though it was not my intent for it to be. And so my actions are important everywhere and every day to reflect devotion to the Lord. Yes, to the Lord only. 811. What's that? Details. Details. That's right. Details. I want to ask you, um, was, uh, were these things restrictions in the law, was that the first time that that was the only time, the only time is the law of Moses. There's nothing else. But I mean, in the, in the body of religious practices. 
oh, I don't know other religions. What I'm sure there were things that they said you can't eat. Like uh, even today uh, in Islam, they got things that they can't eat, and you know they you can't have a dog lick your face, which tells me their religion is wrong right there. But um, uh, there are all kinds of other things that uh, in other religions, I'm sure that you can't eat. But the law of Moses is only for the Jewish people or the Hebrew people during the time of the law until Christ fulfilled. What's that? Was what? I, I don't know. I have no idea. All I can say is that the law of Moses is God's standard for the people of Israel as a type of, and picture of the coming Christ. He fulfilled it. It's done. Was it a casual thing for people to go in and out of all these different religious temples? Oh, yeah. This, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. People do it in the Thai temple all the time. I mean, you'll see people going in there all the time like that. It's just go anywhere in the world. People go in and out of other temples and they eat whatever, you know, in Japan. They got all kinds of places out there, little food things, stalls outside of different temples. And absolutely, it's a very common thing. This is all over the world. But all I'm concerned about is the law of Moses and what Paul is saying about our freedom in Christ in relation to those other idols' temples, regardless of what they are. I don't care what their restriction is because it ain't levied on me. But my care right now is to teach how to do this in a loving manner around other Christians. That's the main thing. Okay, 811. So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Okay, I'm going to read it because it's a little different in this one. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? See, they made it into a... Inter yes. This is speaking of those with a weak conscience who may be motivated to act in a manner contrary to their conscience by eating those things offered to idols. If this happens, Paul says that because of your knowledge, because you know that it's okay, an idol is nothing in all the world, I can go have that tasty snack, okay? Because of your knowledge, it will inevitably cause an offense to occur. This is written as a question, at least in the New King James Version. Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? However, some scholars argue that it is an emphatic, even if a question. Many translations actually cite it as an affirmative statement, such as the ESV. And so you're reading the NIV? NIV too. ESV says, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So it's one or the other. In other words, it is a predictable occurrence where one action follows another. In the weaker brother, our actions will cause inevitable harm. However, what should be considered is what it means when he writes, perish. There is no doubt that he is speaking of someone who is already a believer. The term brother is used, and this indicates someone already in the faith. Further, the fact that Paul is referring to a weak conscience implies a believer as well. There is a conscience concerning Christ, but it is not a developed one. So, does the word perish imply a loss of salvation? The answer is no. There are several thoughts to support this notion. The first is that though he speaks as if something is leaning towards an occurrence, it doesn't mean the thing will actually occur, meaning a loss of salvation. Secondly, though it says, as the ESV translates it, this weak person is destroyed, is this referring to the whole individual or to the faith of the individual? Is the person's faith being used as representative of the person? This is the case because elsewhere, a believer is noted as having forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Anybody know where that's recorded? Peter. 2 Peter 
one, that's right, verse <laughs> nine. Yeah, there you go. Very good, Burke. You are on the ball today. It is also affirmed by Paul's coming words on the issue. Thirdly, just because one thing typically will follow another, it is in no way conclusive that such a thing will inevitably follow, but that it is the normal, natural, and likely result of such a thing. Considering that a person is sealed with the Holy Spirit, that which is natural can and will be negated by the greater spiritual act which previously occurred. It is sure that nowhere else does Paul ever indicate that a believer could lose their salvation. And the contrary is true. The sealing of the Holy Spirit upon belief, which is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, is a guarantee. The one who has placed his faith in Christ, weak though it may be, is saved by his work. He truly is a brother for whom Christ died. If Christ died for this person, then Christ also lives for that person. He will ensure a good end results. The next verse will absolutely confirm this. An excellent connecting verse to this one is found in Romans. Our actions, especially towards our fellow brothers, should be seen in a positive, edifying light. Here's how he states this in Romans chapter 14. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Life application, Jesus died for all. Those who receive this gracious offer become children of God and are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Is it worth destroying the faith of such a person over our actions, especially what foods we're willing to eat? We generally eat three times a day and the meal is forgotten as soon as it is done. Let us not consider such a temporary thing as worth harming the faith of another believer. A12. Well, when you sin against your brother this way, wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Oh boy, that's pretty direct there. This verse begins with but. Mine says, but when you sin, thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. The verse begins with but, which is said in contrast to what he just said. The preceding <coughs> verse asked, and because of your knowledge, Shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? The answer is actually stated by Paul in an interesting way. No, they won't perish in the sense of a loss of salvation as follows below. When you sin against the brethren implies that we have caused an offense to occur. This person is weaker in their knowledge and thus more prone to falling or failing than another may be. Their lack of knowledge may cause them to act against their conscience in a matter that they are unaware of or unsure of. Paul shows in Romans 14, 23, that any action without faith, uh, in any action which isn't in faith is sin. sin. That's right. Any action which isn't in faith is sin. Therefore, to act in a manner contrary to conscience, which means that faith is lacking in action, is to act and sin. The conscience is wounded because there is a lack of proper understanding, and this has led to an action which was taken which was not in faith. Does everybody see what's going on? I'm eating at an idol's temple. I'm doing it in faith. I know this idol is nothing in all the world. This guy doesn't. So he says, I'm going to eat that, and he's not doing it in faith. And what does he do? He sins. 
because it's not in faith. Anything not in faith is sin. Everybody see that? So I'm causing him to sin because I have knowledge, but I didn't use love. First, I need to instruct him. I need to take him to the word of God. I need to show him what's going on because if he's all worried about this, I'm going to make him sin. Paul will continue with the same thought here and elsewhere. All right. So what is immensely important in this is that when you sin against the brethren in this way, Paul says you sin against Christ. The person is in Christ, having been saved by him and having been brought into the family of God. John Chrysostom asks, what can be more ruthless than a man who strikes one who is sick? What is needed is the healing power of right doctrine, not an arrogant display of knowledge about freedoms in Christ, which are not clearly understood by the weaker brother. To sin against another believer in this or in any way is to actually sin against Christ. In this case, it was because of an exercise of knowledge instead of a demonstration of love. We have the knowledge. We need to make sure that we demonstrate the love. This is what Paul is continually harping on throughout this passage. What is needed here is to instruct and write knowledge, which is certainly loving, and then to act together as faithful believers in Christ and adherence to his word. That's why when you say, why didn't you come to the Bible study tonight? You're doing what would be considered a great act of love for a weaker person in Christ. Because if they don't know the Bible and they aren't applying it to their life, then they are sinning, right? Now, it's not being imputed to them. We are not being imputed sin, 2 Corinthians 5.19, but you can still sin. You're just not being imputed. Okay, one of the loving things you can do is invite people to a Bible study. I got an email from somebody this morning that said that there's somebody that needs, uh, is having problems in their life. I won't get into any of the details, but... I'm thinking that if I get a chance to talk to this individual, the thing that I will do will be to say, listen, why don't you come to the Bible, Bible study? And they want to come to church, that's fine. If they don't come to church, and I'm not going to invite them to come to church, but if they want to come, I would invite them to a Bible study. I normally don't invite people ever. I don't think I've invited two or maybe only one person ever to attend Sunday church. Why? Well, there's a reason why. And you preempted me, so now I'm not going to tell you. But Bible class, I will invite somebody to because they're going to get right doctrine and they're going to learn about their life. The reason why is because it's not about me. That's your job and your job. No, you don't attend this church. It's, your, it's people that are in the church. If they feel the church is of value, they will invite people to this church. If I invite people, then it becomes about me. And I'm not going to do that. I refuse. Don't say, don't give, don't give me your logic, your reason. I have settled this in my mind and I'm going to stick with it. It is not about me. And if I invite somebody, they're going to say, oh, Charlie invited me to church and I've got to go to church. And they're not coming because they want to be here. And I'm not going to do that to somebody. I will be defiling their weak conscience. However, Bible study, I will do that. Don't say it. Okay. Understanding this verse confirms that the previous verse was not speaking of a loss of salvation. Paul had asked, shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? His answer is implicitly, no. The reason is because if we sin against Christ, when we sin against the brother, it implies that the brother is in Christ. I know I've read this. I'm going through it again. If he is in Christ, then he is safely in that position. The offense affects both the weaker brother and Christ. In essence, it would be no less possible for that weaker brother to lose their salvation than it would for it to happen to Christ. Does everybody see the logic? He's in Christ. 
Christ is not going to lose what he has. And if you are in him, you cannot lose what he has given you because you are in him. Follow the logic, people. You cannot lose your salvation. Somebody emailed me about a teacher here just recently. And I said, listen, if this teacher is teaching that and that basic, simple doctrine of losing your salvation, you know what I'm thinking? I mean, teaching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if he can't get that simple thing right, what else can he not, should he not be trusted on? I don't know people's doctrine. I don't watch a lot of other preachers and teachers, but I will check out somebody to know their basic doctrine. And if they can't get eternal salvation right, you probably shouldn't be listening to them on any issue. And I'm serious about that because it is so obvious in Scripture. Verses ripped out of context in order to to form a pretext is what that is. You can lose your salvation. And I, I don't understand people that cannot grasp that simple, simple doctrine. Life application. When we are saved, we move from Adam to Christ. Thank you. We are once and forever united to him. And we are positionally in Christ. Therefore, when we sin against another believer, the offense is also against Christ. This is a sobering thought for us to consider and to remember. Let us act charitably towards those who are the redeemed of the Lord as we conduct our affairs. 8.13 Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Okay, this one's a little different. You'll see the difference, but they mean the same thing. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble, okay? Stumble means, as we were talking about a couple verses ago, a stumbling block. I have caused him to stumble, which in essence means I've caused him to sin. I've caused him to err, okay? Not being imputed, once again, you're not being imputed your sin, but that does not mean that you can't sin. You can, and you do harm when you cause somebody to sin. All right, this is the last verse of this uh, particular chapter which is dealt with things offered to idols. However, right at the introduction of the thought, Paul divided that major subject into two overarching issues. Does anybody remember what the two issues are now? We've said them at least 10 times. Knowledge, love. Knowledge and love. The first was knowledge. The second was love. He then explained how the two <coughs> do not always work harmoniously together and that love is, believe it or not, the preferred avenue to follow when knowledge in a weaker brother is lacking okay love first provide the knowledge afterward that is but knowledge is just as important i'm just saying that love is first in priority okay everybody got that it's more important at this point and then you get them the knowledge and if they can't handle it after that that's no longer your responsibility you have given them the knowledge you've given them the word of god if their conscience has continued to be weak hey don't invite him to go with you to lunch. Easy, easy way to handle that. The exercise of knowledge without love can lead to sin. And so the words of chapter 8 have been given to help the one with knowledge concerning a matter in order to consider it in a way which promotes love first and foremost. The issue of things offered to idols was the main area of discussion because it came in response to a question submitted to him by those in Corinth. However, the concept rings true in whatever situation one may face, be it any liberty we have, but which is not understood by the weaker brother. To sum up his thoughts, he begins with, therefore, 
In this, then, we can see his final conclusion on this subject. It is an issue he also treated in Romans 14, 19 through 22. Those verses perfectly complement his thoughts in this chapter. Remember that, Romans 14, 19 through 22. He will also again speak on this subject in his words to the Corinthians. For this portion of the letter, however, his conclusion is that if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. And that would be a tough one for me because once I gave up being a vegetarian, that's pretty much all I eat is meat and candy. And I eat a lot of both. Anyway, yeah. The eating of meat, no matter how tasty and delicious, and even if what he proposes to eat is actually acceptable, is not worth causing another to fall into sin because of what he knows to be right. Love towards the weaker brother is more important than what is consumed at mealtime. And this isn't just for one meal, but as the Greek reads, to the age. It is a term which means forever. Paul would gladly give up on his liberties for all his days instead of causing his brother to stumble. If stumbling is an offense, and if he is the cause of the stumbling, then he is actually causing the offense. This is a lesson for each of us as we consider our actions before our weaker brothers. Whatever gain we think we might have from an action, if it causes another to stumble, then it is not worth it. Life application, and we're done with this chapter. The old saying, little eyes are watching, isn't just true with children who see the example of their elders. It is also true of those who are little in the faith. Let's endeavor with all of our heart to keep our actions in line with this precept in order to keep those less informed from stumbling. 9-1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's are it? You not ah. The result of my work. Okay. In the, in the Lord. There you go. It's a little different here, but it's the same. It says the same thing. They just got a couple of the clauses backwards. Uh, you know, it's the there you go. <laughs> the first verse of chapter 9 appears to both look back to the concluding statement of chapter 8 and also forward to the main subject area of chapter 9, which concerns Paul's apostleship. Looking back, he has just noted that if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again lest I make my brother stumble. Even as an apostle, which indicates that he had personally seen and been commissioned by the Lord, he was willing to make such a concession for his weaker brethren. If he was willing to give up such rights in this way, it should be considered an example for those in Corinth. Now, I'm going to stop right there because this just came to mind. Is that Paul, before he met the Lord, was what? What was his position? Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. That guy would not even be discussing this issue. Not, he wouldn't even be discussing this issue with people unless he understood the freedom in Christ. How people can say, because I've read many times, people say, Paul always adhered to the law of Moses. Paul never taught to deviate from the law of Moses. How they can read the New Testament and say that with a straight face, I do not understand. He was a Pharisee, he wouldn't even talk about this. This wouldn't be something that would even leave his mouth. He'd say, you're not to eat pork, you're not to eat shellfish. He would say the positive commands of the Lord and the negative commands of the Lord, and he wouldn't get into any of this. So for people to say those type of things is absolutely ludicrous. Don't get sucked into the Hebrew roots movement. Looking forward, there are those who may have questioned his apostleship, something he will immediately defend in order to dispel such a thought. Additionally, 
There are those who may have felt he was abusing his rights, overstepping his authority, or unnecessarily inserting himself into their local affairs. He will defend himself concerning these and other issues as he progresses through the chapter. And so to begin, he asks rhetorically, am I not an apostle? In essence, he is saying, I am an apostle. He meets the requirements of apostleship, and he carries the commission of the office. Continuing, he asks, am I not free? Elsewhere, he calls himself a bond servant of Christ. This is not what he is speaking of, but rather that he has the freedom found in Christ that all other Christians also possess, including those freedoms which belong to the office of apostle. He should be free from working for money, but rather should he be, should be paid for his ministry. However, he will discuss later why he didn't exercise that right. This is the type of freedom that he speaks of. After that, a third rhetorical question. Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? The answer is with all certainty, yes. He saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. Then he saw him in Arabia, as can be inferred from Galatians 1.17. Now I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to tell you something about Arabia, just so that you know. There's all these teachings people say, well, the real uh, Mount Sinai is in Saudi Arabia. Okay, this is something that comes out. And the real crossing of the Red Sea is over here. And you get all these videos that people put out. And the people buy the videos and they make a lot of money. And there's a lot of... Th this is not correct, okay? Arabia, at the time of Paul, when he wrote this, included the Sinai Peninsula. Does anybody know what it was called back then? Arabia Petraea. Okay, so Arabia was the Sinai Peninsula. All right, Saudi Arabia at the time didn't exist. By the way, it was a much later uh, place. But because people read something and they run with it, now we've got all these things where the Ark of the Covenant is actually over here and the uh, the uh, temple actually was in the city of David and not on the Temple Mount. And never mind that we have written eyewitnesses of the temple going back 2,000 years that it's on the Temple Mount. Don't buy those books. Okay, you're wasting your time. That just came to mind. I thought I'd throw it out there. Um, he saw him in Arabia. as, And if you follow the Bible, it's impossible. It's impossible that it could be in Saudi Arabia because if you follow the Exodus account, the number of days are recorded and they would have had to been full march or maybe even in a, a small car driving quickly to get to Saudi Arabia in time for those things to happen. Right. All right. Anyway, but people don't want to read the Bible. They want to read the sensational book. Books are so easy to read. They don't challenge your thinking. But if you study the Bible word by word and verse by verse, it is worth every bit of your time. We'll see that again on Sunday. What a great passage. To make a lot of money off of people that don't know. That's what it is. Well, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. That's absolutely right. But there you go. Argumentative. People like to argue. They like to have their own uh, little piece of the pie, which isn't a pie at all, etc. Anyway, um, uh, he saw him in Jerusalem. He saw him in um, the road to Damascus. He saw him in Arabia. He saw him in Jerusalem. That's in Acts 22.17, if you need the reference there. He saw him there at Corinth. See Acts 18.9. And he had seen him at least one other time as well, which is in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1. And having seen the Lord and been commissioned personally by him, see Acts 9.15 and 16, okay, he met the necessary requirements of the office of apostle, okay? The reason why I say that is because to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you must have been commissioned 
personally by Jesus Christ, and you must have seen Jesus Christ. There are no apostles today. There are apostles, but they're not apostles of Jesus Christ. Okay, I could say, Jim, would you go to um, Uganda on behalf of the superior word? Sure, I'll go. Can I be an apostle? Well, you are. I'm sending you. How's that? That is what an apostle is. It means a sent one. But you're not an apostle of Jesus Christ. You're an apostle of the superior word. Why use the term? It doesn't make any sense. But people have to have titles. Okay. So finally, in this verse, he asks, are you not my work in the Lord? The answer is surely once again, yes. He established the church in Corinth and was their father in the faith, as he noted early in, earlier in 1 Corinthians 4. Let me read that to you, just so you remember what we uh, said about that. 4, 15, uh, let's see here. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Could that be true? I mean, could that be, uh, could he be telling a lie to them? No, absolutely, because he's writing them a letter and he's saying, I begot you in the gospel. So it has to be true. I, I got my words backwards there, which I do all the time, but uh, it, he cannot be lying because he's written the letter to them. If it wasn't true, they'd say, what's he talking about? They'd rip up the letter and throw it away. Uh, going on, verse 16, therefore, I urge you, imitate me. So there you go. Paul is taking the time to note that he bears the apostolic authority because he meets the requirements of an apostle. He's doing this in order to logically defend his words and his position on important matters. All of this can ultimately be traced back to the beginning thoughts of the epistle, which spoke of divisions within the church. Remember, everything that we have talked about from chapter one, everything has been about divisions. People dividing the church over this or that, one petty little thing after another, and he's addressing them, and then he's answering their questions about things, and he keeps throwing in the, the hints don't divide, don't divide, don't divide, okay? As an apostle, he was working for harmony within the church, not divisions. There is one Lord, and he is not divided. Therefore, in order to demonstrate that his words were intended as a unifying and valid set of instructions, he's taking the time to defend his position as an apostle. Life application. There are certain requirements necessary in order to claim the title of apostle. Oh, I've already given a couple, but we'll go through it anyway. There, these were for a set duration of time known as the, anybody know, it's called the, yes, apostolic age of the church. Very good, point for you. There are no longer any true apostles within the church, and people claiming such a title only demonstrates that they are not qualified to bear the title because they have not properly understood the very basis for claiming the title. Hold fast to what is sound and in accord with Scripture. And don't be led astray by those who claim to titles which sound impressive, but which bear no weight and no authority. 9-2. Any big questions before we go on? I always try to make a little stop in case somebody wants to yell something out. No? I think a lot of people are more like ambassadors. Yeah, ambassador for Christ. And even that is it's something you actually have to be appointed to. But in essence, we are appointed because we've been given the authority. As long as we're qualified, you need to be a qualified. I don't think if we're believers, we're appointed by the Holy Spirit. Oh, absolutely not. No, that's right. We don't. We don't have. That's why we're saints. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. We got to go out. And we got to tell people about Jesus. Or as she said, they can't hear you. So I'm repeating you. They, you're not fulfilling the commission, the Great Commission. So much for hyper dispensationalism. Okay, nine two. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are my seal of my apostleship in the Lord. It can be inferred from these words of Paul that there were people who had come to Corinth and accused Paul of not being a true apostle. You can just get it from what he's saying. Some have speculated that it was from the camp of Peter, but this is unlikely, unless it was at a time before Peter fully grasped the nature of Paul's ministry. In his second epistle, Peter wrote the following words concerning Paul. Um, well, I'll read it to you in a second. They conclusively show he believed in and supported Paul's apostleship, including the authority of his letters, uh, which he actually places on the same level as anybody. That's right, all scripture. So I'm going to take you to 2 Peter chapter 3, and he says there in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him as written you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of th these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. So there you go. He has elevated Paul right up to an authority on the word of God, and what he writes is on the same level as the word of God. So there you go with that. It's unlikely that it was Peter's camp. Whoever it was that was attempting to undermine Paul's authority, he gives his own defense here to show that his ministry is a valid one. Beginning with, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. So what if others don't accept his status as an apostle? This shouldn't matter at all to those in Corinth because those in Corinth were brought to Christ through his ministry. If they had called on Christ after hearing his words, then their actions validate that he was a minister of Christ. One cannot lead someone to Christ if they are talking about someone other than Christ. In substantiation of this, he continues by saying, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Their conversion is the proof needed that he is in fact an apostle. He's already shown that he meets all of the requirements of being an apostle. Using that status, his work resulted in their conversion and thus sealed those necessary requirements of the office. They were a convincing demonstration of his apostolic authority. The seal, the Greek word is sphragis, is a seal, a signet ring, or an impression of the seal or ring which attests to the validity of what was conveyed. His words show that they are the attestation of his office, one that was sure and one that was irrevocable. Understanding this seal in the Corinthians, we can then rightly deduce that Paul's words are valid for doctrine, reproof, and correction. His letters included in the pages of scripture are fully authoritative, and they have been attested to by those who came to Christ through his ministry. Like Peter's comments about Paul, the Bible is a self-validating document. It is a marvel and a treasure, and it gives us the certainty that we are on the right track in the pursuit of our faith. Life application. If you come to a time of doubt in your faith, 
the best place to go is to the Word. The Word, the Bible. The more you open it and read it, the surer you will be of he whom you have trusted. God has organized it in such a way that it will resolve your doubts, edify your walk, and correct your thinking. Be content, be content in the fact that you have properly trusted in God's provision when you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Somebody emailed me today or yesterday about an issue, something bad happening in their life. And I said, I, I, it'll all work out. I said, just hang in there. It'll all work out. And this individual said, I know, because I've come closer to the Lord in the past year, and I know that I am his or something like that. And I just felt so good hearing that. I just wonderful, just wonderful to know that somebody has come to a point in their life where they understand that all things are working out for good for those who are in Christ Jesus, 100%. It's just... Just think about those churches you talked about earlier that don't dig into this, and you know, just a little ear tickling here and there. And then when the bad things happen, have, it's like you know, what do you fall on? What like, do you, you fall on? I I don't know. All right, nine three. Here we go. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Okay, mine is even shorter. My defense to those examine me is this, and then all it says. Okay, the New King James Version cited here phrases this verse as Paul's introduction to his defense when in fact he has already made his defense. The term he uses for defense and examine are legal in nature, used during an inquiry. He had been legally challenged and he has legally defended his position. Therefore, this verse is referring not to what follows, which is a series of questions on which he bases his defense. Instead, they are a series of rhetorical questions in confirmation of what he has defended. This verse then should end with a period, I'm talking about the New King James Version, not a colon, because the subsequent verses are merely rhetorical questions given as a follow-up to these previously submitted facts. One, he is an apostle, that was verse one. Two, he is free, verse one again. Three, he has seen Jesus Christ our Lord, verse one. Four, those in Corinth are his work in the Lord, verse 1. And 5, the Corinthians are the seal of his apostleship in the Lord, verse 2. He has been challenged, and he has responded in a manner which proves his apostleship. From this springboard of his certified status, he will show what rights he is entitled to in that status. Life application. Understanding Paul's method of writing allows us to more accurately interpret his words. He was trained under the law and was skilled at identifying an issue and then defending that issue preemptively. This is an excellent way of handling a sensitive discussion which will keep others from thinking they have outwitted you. Thinking of contingencies that may arise and responding to them in advance will usually bolster one's viewpoint in the end. Okay, I'll give you an example of that. It's Thomas Aquinas. I bring him up from time to time. He has the uh, uh, Summa Theologica. And in there, he gives a, a statement, and then he gives questions, and then he gives rebuttals to it. And so he defends in advance what he is going to come to his ultimate conclusion. So, um, be my defense, O God, as I face the enemy's darts. When they speak against me, fill me with your word. Though they may have graphs, notes, notes, and charts, you are on my side. My defender is my Lord. Knowing your word is the most valued tool. 
because it was given by you to guide me through each trial, against the vain utterings of the wicked and the fool, by standing on it, the attacks will end after a short while. Every good lesson given there is a great defense for us, because they are lessons which reflect the very heart of Jesus. Okay, 9-4. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Okay, this is his first rhetorical question. Paul's words concerning his rights as an apostle here have grown naturally out of his previous discussion about food sacrificed to idols. There in verse 8-9 he said, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. In that verse, the word liberty is translated from the same word as right, which Paul uses here in 9-4. Though the subject has changed from meat sacrifice to idols to the rights of the apostles, the examples remain consistent. Paul finished chapter 8 by saying that if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This was immediately followed by his claim to apostleship. He has a right to eat and drink at the expense of the church, but he hadn't exercised that right, as will be noted in the verses to come. In not using this right, however, some may have come to the conclusion that he wasn't actually an approved apostle. See what he's doing here? In essence, if Paul were an apostle, the church would pay his bills and he wouldn't be working side jobs in order to support himself. Okay, I'm sure people would say that about me. They see me out there with no shoes on and dirty clothes on Monday morning and they have no idea that this is what I do on Sunday. Well, he couldn't be a preacher because he's filthy, whatever. The same could be concluded today. Peter Preacher isn't really a pastor because he has several part-time jobs. He's just playing pastor at the church he preaches at. However, Paul has preempted this line of reasoning by stating the somewhat parenthetical thought of verses 9, 1 through 3. His apostleship is, in fact, validated by those in Corinth. They are the seal of his apostleship. As this is the case, then why doesn't he exercise his rights as an apostle? The answer will come in due time, so hold on. But before it does, he will continue to rhetorically ask several more questions concerning apostles' rights. These questions will be answered from the words of Scripture, including words from Jesus himself. Life application. Is it a mark of an unacceptable ministry that a preacher has side jobs in order to pay his wages? Is a small home church of less importance than a large megachurch? Using Paul as an example, surely the opposite may at times be true. The preacher, pastor, or priest who relies solely on the church for his expenses is in the comfortable position of preaching whatever he wishes without worry of where his bread will come from. Because of this, his heart may or may not truly care about the word which he has been called to present. I'm thinking of the Methodist church right now. Okay, they've been going down the hill. And what does that mean? They're preaching a word that doesn't matter to them. They're in a position where they're getting a pay every week. They're getting a retirement someday. They probably get a car and a pastorate house, right? What do they care? If the word doesn't matter to them, it makes no difference. But the one who stands behind the pulpit without receiving a full measure for his efforts is more likely doing so because of a profound sense of care and respect for God's superior word. Which then is more likely to feed, defend, tend to, and be willing to give all for his flock? Just up to you guys. 9-5.
Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? 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 <laughs> Paul's words concerning his rights as an apostle here have grown naturally out of his previous discussion about food sacrificed to idols. There in verse 8, 9, he said, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. In that verse, the word liberty is trans... I'm reading 9-4 again. I'm sorry. Why didn't somebody stop me? Okay, yeah, Cephas, you got me all, all, all off on your word, wording of Cephas. Okay, I'm going to read you 9-5 now. I'll be in the right comments. In this verse, verse 9-5, Paul continues to show that he bears the rights of an apostle, whether he exercised those rights or not. His question, which is composed of several parts, is rhetorical in nature. In essence, it is a strong affirmation, not a perplexed question needing validation. In this verse, much interpretive abuse has taken place over the centuries because of the policies of the Roman Catholic Church and the mishandling of concepts by early sects and individuals. Paul begins with, do we have no right to take along a believing wife? In this, the clear and obvious interpretation is that he is speaking of an actual wife. However, because of those who forbid the clergy to marry and other confused thoughts, they interpret this not as wife, but as merely a sister in the Lord who would accompany an apostle. That would be scary, wouldn't it? Two single people traveling alone together? This, however, only brings in even greater difficulties and is certainly not the intent of the verse. Rather, it is speaking of a, a right which was known among the Christians of that time. That right is that the apostles who were married could be accompanied by their wives, and both the apostles and the wife were to be supported by the church. This is the intent of, as do also the other apostles. That's Paul's words. Those apostles who were married were accompanied by their wives during their apostolic travels, and they were supported by the church. Therefore, Paul's rhetorical question is, don't we have this right as well? In response, a yes answer must be given whether he were to accept the right or not. The we is speaking of Barnabas, who accompanied Paul, who will be mentioned in the next verse. They were also entitled to this right. The question next includes the brothers of the Lord. Accepting this position of the verse at face value has caused a great deal of apoplexy among many over the centuries. The cult of Mary worship and the nutty ideas that she is a perpetual virgin has led to unreasonable interpretations of these words. The word translated as brothers could be referring to the children of Joseph and Mary, but it could also refer to children of Joseph from a former marriage or even more distant relatives of the Lord. Of course, those who heretically worship Mary will inevitably claim that one of the latter two was correct and that Mary never had relations with Joseph. Such biblical interpretations are inexcusably forced and they're an unnatural. These were the sons of Joseph and Mary born after the birth of Christ Jesus, as the Bible indicates elsewhere. They, like the other apostles, were entitled to this right and privilege as well. Of course, uh, hang on, yes, next paragraph. And finally, a separate distinction is made for Peter and Cephas. This 
Spirit-inspired wording was certainly intended to keep the church from heresy concerning leadership. The leader of a body is entitled to be married and is entitled to have the wife supported by the church. Despite the clarity here, the Roman Catholic Church claiming that the Pope is directly linked to Peter does not allow their Pope to be married, something completely contrary to the very model given in the person they claim as their first Pope. Not only does this verse show that Peter was married, but other such indications are given in Scripture. In Matthew 8, let me read you what it says here. Peter's wife's yes, okay, I'm going to read it anyway, even though you know what I'm talking about. And we'll see how they worded it here, because it's kind of interesting how they worded it. 8, 14, and 15, it says... Um, now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. Now, how does it say in the King James Version? It says his mother-in-law, I think, is what it says. His wife's... Anyway, a uh, Baptist preacher I was listening to one time said, it would be a really stupid person to have a mother-in-law and not have a wife. <laughs> I'd agree with that. Okay, so it would be rather nutty. Oh, here it is. It would be rather nutty to acquire a mother-in-law and not a wife. I just quoted him in my commentary. A clear interpretation of this verse is that Paul had the rights of an apostle to be married and to bring his wife along at the expense of the church. That Jesus had half-brothers who were the sons of Joseph and Mary and that Peter took a wife when he took a mother-in-law. He didn't just take a mother-in-law, he did take a wife. From these points, we can deduce that one, it is right and acceptable, we got just enough time to finish this, that the clergy of the church may marry and that the wife should be supported by the church. Further, the ideology of a church which forbids such marriage is contrary to scripture. Two, when the church clergy travels for church business, including missionary work, the wife should be supported by the church, thus keeping the clergy member from possible temptations during that period of absence and for the general well-being of the husband and his wife. And three, there is no obligation of a clergy member to be married, but there is also no tenet which would forbid them from marrying. Life application. When evaluating the Bible, keeping one's thoughts free from presuppositions is always the right approach. If one comes to the text already supposing something is the case, then he will manipulate what is being read in order to fit what is already believed. This is not sound interpretation, and it can only lead to great problems in doctrine. Many blessings you have upon us showered, kindness beyond measure you have poured upon us. Delicious food, clouds of white, and radiant fields which have flowered, but none of these compare to our Lord Jesus. You send us rain in due time to soften up the earth, and beauty adorns the mountains which stand before us. Our hearts are filled with joy, gladness, and mirth, but nothing compares to the delight of knowing Jesus. What kind of love, how you care for your children, what kind of love you have lavished upon us. Indeed, you have been so good to the sons of men by sending us your greatest gift, our Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and look into your word and to share your word and to learn about it and lord we pray that what has been said here today is proper and correct and if it isn't i would hope that you would cause the video to disappear from the video list so that people wouldn't be infected with bad doctrine 
but I wouldn't believe that's the case. You know, I wouldn't purposely and intentionally lead somebody down a wrong path. But Lord, please let it be so that uh, your word is exalted and that people will find the truth in their studies of the word. And Lord, we do pray for those who are afflicted in mind and body and spirit and finances and whatever trouble they face. We pray for them right now. And we certainly ask that you uh, bless them and take care of them and meet their needs according to your great wisdom. And Lord, we thank you and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And one more thing before we finish, I just remembered that we have somebody in the church that needs a computer. So if somebody has a computer that they do not need, let me know and we will get that to them. They're in the church here in Sarasota. So there you go with that. And um, I'll mention that again on Sunday, but that just came to mind. So and praise Tony, the Lord. We have a lift chair. Okay. So if, if somebody needs it, okay, good. All right, good. I will let folks know that. Thank you. Um, we're going to go to break and say goodbye to folks online. I